We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. At least we have kept the 1.5 degrees dream alive, even though it may be on life support. And we're looking to the developed world that basically put us in this position to help us to recover from some of the disasters and events that we're faced with. And this link between the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis is really, <laughs> they're entwined. This is Generation One from UCL, University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. I'm Helen Chersky, and in this episode, we're taking a deep breath after all the excitement and drama of COP26. And we're going to be sitting down to digest what actually happened and what it means for what happens next. We're recording this on the Monday just after it all finished. So we'll be bringing you the first reactions from a range of experts as they nurse whatever the COP equivalent of a hangover is. Mark Maslin has spent the past two weeks in Glasgow. So Mark, you've just come out of the fray of Glasgow, two whole weeks there. What are your impressions at the end of it all? It was the most frantic two weeks of my life. What I'm really excited about is that um, they really did hammer home and actually get to what we are now calling the Glasgow Climate Pact. Obviously, the negotiations in the middle are the, are the really central bit, but then there's lots of organisations and people and lobbyists all around the outside of that. What were they doing while all of this was going on? Were they just listening in or were they, was that a separate thing? Um, so COP is basically four meetings in one. There's the heart, which is the negotiations, where everybody is trying to actually get an agreement. Then outside of that is within the COP process is countries and organizations presenting what they're doing to decarbonize. Then in Glasgow, there were businesses and other organizations having side events, trying to basically build business to business and connections. And then there's the protesters and the activists who are incredibly powerful, who are organizing protests. So COP is basically four meetings in one. And sometimes those bits don't even connect at all. And that's why it's so huge and so noisy. We're going to be talking a lot in this podcast about the big agreement itself and the details of what was in it. But just give us a flavour of some of those other bits. Like what were people learning from each other? Were they listening to each other? Were they all just shouting at each other? Like what was happening around the sides? Uh, so around the sides, there are huge numbers of deals. So you saw that the USA and China had had something like 30 secret meetings over the last couple of months. And suddenly on the Thursday of the last week announced, yes, we're going to collaborate on dealing with climate change. We also had lots of businesses coming together and actually creating new partnerships to decarbonize, say, waste streams or looking at how to actually change transport networks. And actually, lots of money was changing hands. You saw that companies were actually engaging with countries and actually writing checks right on the table going, right, we will fund this part of your decarbonisation pathway. I mean, it's amazing how much gets discussed at COP. Just finally, so you, you were there for the full two weeks, I think, and it sounds like it was frantic and loud all the time. Uh, do you get to collapse in a heap now or is this just where the work starts? Unfortunately, I'd love to sleep for a week, but no, it's back to work. Uh, well, I will let you get back onto that, but thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Helen. 
You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. Today, in 2021, Earth is home to 7.9 billion people, spread throughout nearly 200 countries with different languages, different cultures, different vulnerabilities to climate change, and different historical contributions to the problem. But we all share this planet, and we all share this truly global challenge. COP26 represents the best attempt to date to include all of those voices in weaving a fair and effective framework for the future of Earth's climate. But humanity needs action, not words. So let's get into the details of what actually happened at COP26. We have three guests joining us today because on this topic we really need a wide range of perspectives. And our guests are Professor Kate Jones, Dr Priti Parikh and Ryan Phillip. So let's start. Uh, if each of you could introduce yourselves and your connection to COP and climate issues. Kate, let's start with you. Hi, brilliant to be on the podcast, Helen, and uh, great to, to be with all of the other guests. Um, I'm Kate Jones. I'm Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at UCL. I'm interested in nature-based solutions, like um, how we use nature to achieve some of the mitigation and adaptation goals. And also, I'm a scientific advisor for the UK's Climate Change Committee, which is an independent body, which tracks how well the UK is actually delivering on its climate change pledges. I'm very glad that someone is keeping track. Um, Pretty, how about you? Lovely to be here, everyone. And I'm Dr. Priti Parikh, Associate Professor in Engineering and International Development. And my link with climate, therefore, is thinking about infrastructure solutions for climate adaptation. I had the privilege of being part of UCL's delegation to COP26, and I was at COP last week. Brilliant. And last but not least, Ryan. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Helen. My name is Ryan Phillip. I am an international postgraduate student here at UCL. I'm from a tiny, um, small island developing state called St. Kitts and Nevis. Fortunately, I was able to join my country's delegation at COP26 and participate in a few events during the final week. Well, for the two of you that were there, let's just get a, a quick flavour of, of what stood out. We're going to get into all the details, but just on the big picture stuff. Pretty, what are your big takeaways? What happened? What didn't happen? What was it like to be there? Oh, gosh. Um, It was quite extraordinary to see the difficult dialogues shaping out. For me, in week one, I remember when the Indian Prime Minister came in and made a pledge to reach net zero in 2070 for the first time, which received criticism, but was a big step forward as it affects a billion people in that region. And also it is a nation which is highly dependent on coal. But what was interesting was to see the kind of tensions between developed nations and developing nations play out right to the end. In fact, to the last hour of COP26, where there was a push to um, change the language on phasing out of coal, which was watered down to phasing down of coal. But for me, it was um, exciting to see that at least we have kept the 1.5 degrees dream alive, even though it may be on life support. But it was disappointing to see that there was still a lack of will and investment into climate adaptation, which is what the developing nations will need. Well, we're getting into some of those details. But before that, Ryan, what was your kind of big, big picture, big takeaway? Well, firstly, it was very tiring. You know, there was a lot happening. Um, I think even if you weren't a delegate, you're just an observer. You can have a full eight to five day just attending side events and whatnot. 
It was my first time at, at an event like that. So the biggest takeaway for me from COP26 was that most parties now agree that we have to target 1.5 degrees instead of 2 degrees, which was kind of what was looked at in the, the Paris Agreement. Before we get to the progress, Kate, obviously we've had, a, we are having a global pandemic and you know, there was a f- six years in in the end between the Paris meeting and this one. So how did the pandemic influence the progress towards the Paris goals and the whole discussion of what we do about climate change? That's an interesting question. I, I think it's acted as a as a kind of a delay, I would I would guess in some ways, because of the delay in the COP and also the problems with organizing it. But also I think it also acted as a wake-up call. So I think there are positive and negatives for the pandemic effect. So the pandemic is probably, and I say that with some knowledge, probably caused by uh, our environmental degradation and um, you know deforestation and cutting down habitats and degrading landscapes so that animals which weren't in contact with us are more in contact with us and 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 speak and pathogens can jump into human populations and so the kind of degradation and the environmental degradation that's that's being caused by our human activity is the root cause of the pandemic. It certainly feels as though the idea of an existential threat is being taken a lot more seriously, even in this country, which was not at risk of societal collapse as a result of the pandemic. You know, the, the, the panic over toilet rolls, which people, you know, people take the mick out of that a lot. But it was a small, the tiniest, tiniest piece of insecurity and people were terrified. And, and I feel it, it did it did actually help people take things like that seriously. Pretty, what, what do you think about the effects of the pandemic? Well, um, I work with communities who, even before the pandemic, struggled to survive. And with the pandemic, we saw that they started to revert back to using polluting fuels. So, for example, some of the communities who were being transitioned to renewable energy, to clean cooking fuels, they could not afford to pay their bills, their energy bills, and they started reverting back to using coal and wood. So from that perspective, if we are asking those households to make this transition, it is going to be a difficult conversation. And I felt that some of those difficult dialogues did play out in COP when there were discussions about loss and damages, when there were discussions about uh, climate, uh, climate adaptation finance and technical assistance. Ryan, you mentioned coming from a small, small island. Perhaps for those who don't, <laughs> whose geography needs a bit of a, uh, a, bit, a bit of revision, just remind us how big uh, St Kitts and Nevis is. But, but then tell us, what do the small islands, is their voice heard? How is it heard? So like I said, I'm from St. Kitts and Nevis. It's about 68 square miles. We have about 50,000 people population. So, you know, it's really tiny, really relaxed place. But in terms of if our voices are heard at a major conference like COP, we come together and we form what is called AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States. And we kind of negotiate together because we have similar vulnerabilities, we have similar aims. And one of the major things that we we speak about, especially at COP, is um, climate finance. And one of the disappointing bits about COP26 is that, you know, loss and damage wasn't included in the final agreement. And so basically, loss and damage is that we as developing countries 
that haven't com- contributed much to um, the climate crisis are the most affected and the most impacted. And we're looking to the developed world that basically put us in this position to help finance, you know, some of the events uh, or help us to recover from some of the disasters and events that we're faced with. Kate, we hear a lot about adaptation and mitigation, and I think it's not always clear, you know, in the general conversation, what the difference between those two things is. Could you just clarify that for us? Yeah, so mitigation is are the things that you do to take care of the emissions that we already have. So it could be that you, uh, sorry, that that are, are um, being emitted into the atmosphere. So you could extract um, some of the carbon by planting trees, for example, which soak up carbon and give off oxygen. But adaptation is adapting to the climate change that's already here, and often is thought of the kind of Cinderella of the climate change. Um, movement because it's kind of ignored and I, I'm not sure how how well understood it is that we are already facing over one degrees of of climate change and you know without and we've got like 1.5 baked in to the system by 2050 and so in order just to stay where we are we ha- and also meet some of those mitigation targets we actually have to put in a lot of adaptation. So these are things like um, green roofs, planting more trees for you know adapting to the higher temperatures, creating cooler environments, a sustainable urban drainage to cope with the the flood risk, planting and or restoring peatland so it can actually absorb carbon so that it's more resilient. Having high biodiversity so it's more resilient to shocks when climate change happens. So I, I'm not sure that the kind of adaptation needed by all countries on the planet and also the UK is actually understood. And so um, I think I was a little disappointed that adaptation didn't feature as much as it, it should have. And this link between the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis is really. <laughs> they're entwined right so and I think we're tra- kind of treating them separately at the moment in some of these um, international agreements. It is just so many very big issues and it sounds it sounds crazy in a way that if if as you said we've basically locked in 1.5 degrees of change that we're not putting a lot of time into thinking about how to deal with that but obviously there's a priority to stop it getting worse. Pretty, how about you what what do you see when it comes to adaptation and mitigation in your area? So I agree with Kate I think there needs to be much stronger emphasis, action in climate adaptation. My take on this, and this is the white elephant in the room that no one talks about, that between now and 2050, we're going to add 2 billion people to this planet. Most of this population growth is going to take place in developing nations and even within those countries in low-income settlements where there are already gaps in housing and infrastructure. So the big question is how are we going to provide housing and infrastructure to this additional population in a way which is climate resilient. Take countries which have 70% dependency on coal at the moment. For them to make this shift requires huge undertaking. And I feel that this has been underestimated and then developing countries feel that their voice is not being heard. Well, there's a lot about targets. And I'm just quite interested in the question of targets because, you know, every time there's a big international meeting, there are some targets, people promise stuff. And that's one thing. But if you don't actually deliver on that target, 
you're not it's not you're not necessarily helping well let's perhaps talk about one of the targets that was announced which was about deforestation that there was a big focus i think more than 100 countries signed up at this cop to uh, improvements in deforestation so kate perhaps what what happens next was that good enough uh, and what will happen as a result of it well, it was a great start. I don't want to be negative about it. I think it's a really brilliant start that that was on the, you know, that was in the forefront of people's minds. I think the key thing for it to be delivered is the mechanisms for how, if you're a local person and local community, and you'll, you know, have low income and you need, you know, funds and food and shelter, what's to stop you doing that deforestation? And I think that there was some commitments on uh, private and public funds of about 14 billion to support that and to support support indigenous local communities. Uh, And that's really brilliant. But, you know, how those mechanisms actually work, how do you um, make sure that they go to the right communities and they go to the right projects? But also, and I think this is really important, how do we stop those... um, production change uh, that we're let's say using in the UK and we don't realize that we've deforested half of Indonesia to have palm oil you know in our breakfast cereals. Well you raise a really important point there which is that you know if you live in a a rich western nation uh, which a lot of the loudest voices are it's very easy to say oh well they they, someone over there is causing a problem. And often the people who are actually cutting down the trees in this case are, you know, they're poor. And and how, I'm just curious about each of you, how much you feel that we are, this is rich countries saying, oh, well, you over there have to do something. But they're, they're sort of ignoring, not just, as you said, the chains, but the fact that there's a lot of poverty. You're asking poor people to make themselves poorer. And um, Pretty, what's your take on that? So... I was really pleased by this commitment for deforestation, which was uh, signed by 100 nations. It's a step in the right direction. But once again, I have questions on implementation of this. I'm working with communities, low-income communities in East Africa to transition them away from using coal, charcoal and wood for cooking to using LPG, which I know is not a perfect solution, but it's a cleaner and better solution. And what we're finding there is at the moment, women spend hours collecting wood, bringing the wood back, cooking, subjecting themselves to indoor air pollution. So if we were to transition them to clean fuels, it would have a huge implication both for their health and well-being, but for deforestation. But the problem is that a lot of those households cannot afford to pay for LPG. And especially in the pandemic, we found that a lot of those households were reverting back to using polluting fuels. So I think for low-income households, uh, their day-to-day lift experiences are shaped by how to survive, how to get access to basic services. And this needs to be considered in climate adaptation and resilience plans. Can I I just maybe add one thing? I guess... I would say that there's this, you know, and sometimes there's this vision of that we're saving the planet and, and these world leaders are saving us and we're, you know, all, all to be saved by their benevolence. But let's just take a look at that. Uh, the reason these world leaders have got together and the re- reason that they're trying to do something about climate change is because in the long run, it will cost 200 300 400 500 times more than it than it would if they didn't do anything about it so it's a pure financial thing that we're dealing with here it will cost a lot more 
to fix the problem after it's we have runaway climate change well let's just pick up because finance was a big issue and and ryan i'd like your um, opinion on this so you mentioned that loss and damage was not in the final agreement just give us some practical a practical view so if if it had been if this money had been offered what practical things would the small island nations be doing with it you know what do they need to do so I will use where I'm from uh, as an example. So in the Caribbean, we're extremely vulnerable to hurricanes. Um, They happen yearly. And for one, we always need funding for rebuilding. When an island is impacted, you know, it can take a significant um, percentage of their GDP just to rebuild and recover once a storm passes. So if it is that we are impacted by a storm right now, you know, we would need funding to recover. But we would also need that funding to to become a bit more resilient, you know, build sea defences. We we really need to prioritise in smaller islands. Thank you. I think it's so important to to connect the small scale things on the ground where an individual is looking at their beach or their home with these big international agreements, because sometimes they can seem so, so far apart. Now, we've got a question from a listener who recorded a question for us. So here it is. What do you think is the value of COP, particularly when activists such as Greta Thunberg have recently dismissed it as ineffective? Um, So I'd like each of your responses to that. Pretty, let's start with you. So I would say that it's not quite blah, blah, blah. Um, It is a small step in the right direction. Uh, At least now the climate science has is agreed there was a common alignment on the 1.5 degrees goal and there was a recognition that we need to work together to move forward and there was a call to get countries back next year with their national targets so i think it's a baby step Uh, i agree that there there were gaps in the final document around loss and damages around adaptation also 100 billion dollars were promised and they have not been forthcoming for adaptation So we're not quite there yet, but it is a step in the right direction. Kate, was it all just blah, blah, blah? (laughs) I think I'd agree with what Prissy was saying there about it is a small step. And I do worry that it's we're not going fast enough. And I think people like Greta uh, have been so inspirational. And I think she needs to keep and we all need to keep going and, and move our conversation. She's, you know been really instrumental in moving the conversation and and bringing that onto the agenda all the time and I think that pressure needs to be sustained we need to to shift up the pressure so that they move faster so I think the framework is there or it's beginning to be there but the speed isn't quite there and Ryan your first time at COP you're seeing all these big discussions for the first time did you think it was just a talking shop yeah so like you said I, I I think if I didn't experience you know, get an experience for the negotiations and the actual process. I might have thought, you know, maybe it was a blah, blah, blah. Maybe, you know, nothing substantial came out of it. But I would have to agree with Pretty and Kate, you know, there are small steps. And like I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest things for me is that there is a common consensus that we have to stick to 1.5 and not 2 degrees. Um, I'm not sure if you guys would have heard, but... um, 
the Prime Minister of Barbados, she, Mia Motley, she would have said that, you know, two degrees is a death sentence for us in the small island developing states. And it really is. There is science, The scientific community has come together and said that we have to stick to 1.5. And I'm happy that that has come out of the conference. Uh, are we on the path to 1.5? We aren't quite there yet. It's a very slow process. Fantastic. So to finish with, we are going to dip into our time capsule to ask each of you to contribute to the time capsule we're building up. Just as a reminder, these can be things either that you would like to leave in the past and they're going in the time capsule so that people in the future can put them in a museum and hope they never have to see a real one ever again. Or it could be something that you want to put in the time capsule because you think the future really needs this and it shouldn't get lost. Um, so I'm going to ask each of you very briefly just to pick your object to leave with us in our time capsule. Pretty, would you like to go first? Sure, why not? So I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who. So what I would like to put in the time capsule is Doctor Who's TARDIS because uh, today as I sit here, I'm cautiously optimistic that in 30 years' time our world would be a better place. But I would like our future generation to be able to travel back to see what was the havoc that we created on this planet and to see how difficult those dialogues and discussions have been to get to a point where the future is better. So I'm foolish, I'm optimistic and a huge Doctor Who fan. That is a brilliant contribution. I love that. We will be on the phone to Doctor Who immediately. Uh, Kate, what would you like to leave in our time capsule? <laughs> well, I, I want to be best friends with Prissy now because I'm also a big Doctor Who fan. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Um, so mine is a bit more conceptual and a bit more boring, but I'd like to consign to history this uh, rational economic man model of economics. Now, this is where the, this is kind of uh, started by Adam Smith in his book, Wealth of Nations. This was where economics was thought to be self-interested. It's it, uh, have rational actors who know what they want. They make rational choices to maximise their utility. And it's broken. It's totally wrong. It, it's, it's led to a kind of economic model where all the intrinsics which we rely on, like clean air, clean water, people to look after the children while somebody else goes to work, are not counted for. And that has caused us to not value the environment. Uh, so I can sign rational economic man to history. Very good. Ryan, last but not least. Yeah, mine is, is a bit different to Perthes and, and Kate's. And I would compile a document, a synthesis, basically, of what we have done to rectify the climate crisis for future generations. But I just want to let people know, you know, what was done and, and how much we did to, you know, conserve their futures. It's a critical point that really understanding history is a very important part of understanding what to do in the future. So that's a great addition to the time capsule. Thank you very much to all three of you. You've been fabulous guests, of course, and it's been fascinating to talk to you. So thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We want to leave you feeling that there's plenty that you can do to keep the world moving towards a better future, because it's true, there are loads of things that you can do. We've got some suggestions on the UCL Generation One website, and anyone can make a pledge there to commit to these actions. And you can also see what other people have pledged to do. So the top three pledges at the moment are shopping at charity shops and swap shops for clothes, 
Number two is checking tyre pressures for better fuel efficiency. And number three is checking out the NASA app to weigh your local trees to find out how much carbon they're storing. So you can look at the whole list and make your own pledges on the website. And you can also suggest your own pledge. You can do that on social media via the hashtag UCL Generation 1. And you can also keep up to date there with all the other climate action at UCL. If you've got comments about the podcast or ideas for things we could cover or anything else you'd like to let us know about, send an email to podcasts, with an S at the end, at ucl.ac.uk. And that's it for this episode of Generation One from UCL, turning climate science and ideas into action. I'm Helen Cheresky and my thanks this week go to Kate Jones, Pretty Parikh, Ryan Phillips and Mark Maslin. The next edition of Generation One from UCL will be next Wednesday, where we'll be talking about trees. They matter, but just how much? Goodbye for now.